Coffee Shop with an old friend right here at World Cup Coffee and Tea at Northwest 18th and Gleason for another OMN Coffee Shop Conversation. I'm Tom D'Antoni reminding you that this podcast is now also available for you to listen to and even download on iTunes, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Just search for Oregon Music News. The old friend is Ron Rogers. His band, The Wailing Wind, has been around for seems like 10 years. Time flies. I wrote this in 2011, and it's still true. Remember when there was rock? I mean the rock that defined the late 60s and early 70s? Countrified rock, hippie rock, and I do not use the word hippie pejoratively. The kind of rock that found its commercial success with the Eagles, the Birds, Flying Burrito Brothers, the Almond Brothers, and a lot of others. If that's your speed, Ron Rogers is for you. How about we go meet him? Huh? Welcome to the cupping room. Thank you. Uh, and we were uh, in conversation. I, I hate to do that. Well, when the mic was off, you know, but what are you going to do? I mean, you're not going to talk to each other, you know? <laughs> you come in, say hello, what, you know? But we're talking about documentaries and, and music documentaries. And, and you, you said you saw Joe Cocker? Yeah. Was Bobby in that? Bobby Torres? I didn't see him. Huh. I didn't see well, him. If there was a conga player, it was probably Bobby. Yeah. Bobby. Um, but it was interesting because, uh, you know, you just figured Joe Cocker, Mad Dog's an Englishman, just set him up and yeah. all that. After Mad Dog's an Englishman, he was broke and he didn't do anything for two years and he was real depressed because he, the show just kind of got took, taken away from him on the road. Leon Russell. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It was really, really weird. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, kind of like one of those things, you know, you if you're out in the audience, you think everything's rock and roll is groovy, but <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> well, no. no, it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, aside, aside well, when I was out in the audience, I was a you know, young hippie, and I just yeah. was like, "Wow, oh like, yeah, it's gotta be cool." Everything's groovy. Yeah, just groovy. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, and we didn't know in the 50s that everything was controlled by the mob. We didn't know that. No. Well, no. That, was part of the, that was part of Joe Cocker's deal, too. Oh, is that right? Is after his first tour, to support his first album, his manager set up all these dates for him, and he said, I don't want to do those dates. I'm tired. I want to go home. And the guy said, if you don't do those dates, they're going to break your legs. <laughs> and so he had to go to Hollywood and get... The, get a band together so he could get fulfill all these obligations. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. Oh man. Because the mob had set up all these dates and they were they were already counting their money. Man. Was Claudia Lanier in that documentary? I think she was. Yeah. It was. It, yeah, they they kind of um, they kind of. Glo- the the Mad Dogs and Englishman thing they just went through that pretty fast they did uh-huh. they did interview Rita Coolidge mm-hmm. and she said she just felt sorry for Cocker because he just kind of at one point he just got to where he just all he did was stay messed up on drugs and alcohol because yeah. he was wouldn't have any any fun right. yeah. but she said every night he brought it he 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 did his job but uh-huh. she said he he hardly talked to anybody. Jeez. Yeah. It's awful. I know. It's horrible. Yeah, but everybody in the audience thought, oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Everybody thought it was awful. Yeah. Like, like me. I just thought it was peaches and cream. <laughs> you know, uh, Bobby Torres brought uh, Claudia Lanier in, into town about a year and a half ago. And I got to interview her. Uh-huh. And I got to, I, I got a hug. Uh-huh. Claudia Lanier? She was brown sugar. Oh, no. Jeez. Yeah, she was she was mixed, steady girl. There she was. Now. She was, yeah, she was. I, and 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 when uh, when I was doing that story, I did actually, I I I, I did read, read, I read about her, and and saw that she had been in Playboy. So I, you had to get your hood. I had to. No, I had to look for it online. <laughs> <laughs> Which made the hug even better. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. So. Um, you got the whaling, got the whaling wind. Yeah, yeah. We we kind of are um, 
kind of our steady thing is we play the uh, second Friday of every month uh, happy hour at the Hawthorne mm-hmm. Theater Lounge. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of been doing that for two or three years now. So we, we have a we pull a pretty good crowd in there. Mm-hmm. And we play we played not long ago at the Laurel Thirst and we're playing out at O'Connor's soon and and we play up in Hood River about three times a year and you know, we get an odd festival here or there, but we're we're kinda I'm kinda happy with this one home base gig. Kinda gets my yaya really? out. Yeah, and uh get to try, you know play some new songs and stuff I'm not I'm not out to burn it up and plus it, it, I don't know there's not that many places to play for a band like mine you know you, you know, there's just there's not that many gigs so but anyway I mean I'm I'm having fun that's the main thing uh, what what is a band like yours a band like mine well it's kind of a rock and roll band really yeah and um, <clears throat> so you know you have to have a um, a lot of the places we play are really kind of lean towards country rock, uh-huh. and I think people think because I'm from Texas that I might be a country rock band, but it's not. I'm more of a '60s psychedelic rock band. Yeah, that's more, that's yeah. more what I am. Yeah. Um, so, so anyway, you know, it's like uh, you know, we can't, you know, we can't play play. Holocene or someplace like that, you know, because we're too old. But um, I don't know. You know, we're just trying to. We're just. I mean, we're working on a CD. We put out a CD about every three years. I mean, uh-huh. you know, just trying to do something artistic. Um, but there's just so much. There's just so much out there. Um, you know, you're competing with a million things besides. A million other bands. It's there's right. there's so many there's so much there's only so much time for people to be entertained. So that's true. You know because yep. there's so many other things to do. So but I don't know. Playing music's not like it used to be for me. I mean it was you know. What did it used to be? What did it used to be? Well, <clears throat> when I played, and you know this is in the seventies. Mm-hmm. I played to make a living and I did and um, and it was just kind of a different mindset you know it was like I was in Austin and I, I don't know I played three or four times a week and I made a living I didn't have to have a job that was before Austin was cool right well that's when Austin was cool well you know what I mean yeah, yeah. Um, but and I don't know you know it was, it was just kind of different and, and like the clubs didn't expect you to fill the place they just wanted you to come play good music and people just came mm. um, you didn't and you know and then once you got in a position where you were pulling people you know all the better then you then you could do things like charge a cover charge and they and you get all the money you know of course uh-huh. you know that never I, I don't know if that goes on anymore I guess yeah that's what the moral starts I guess we get all the money but I don't know. It's just different, just different kind of, just a different kind of attitude, you know. It's 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 um, and there's just so many musicians now. There's just so many people, and there's so many good people, you know, trying to figure out who to go see. Um, you really think there's more now? More players? Yeah, because there's fewer places to play. Yeah, but there's more. I think there's more players. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think there's a lot more. I think there's a lot more musicians out there vying for these, for the venues than you. I, I mean, because when I played in Austin back in the '70s and '80s, <coughs> I don't know. It's like I knew everybody in town that played music. Yeah. But in this town, God. Yeah. There's so many people. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. You know. And I don't know. I don't know where it is I go to hear music these days. I mean, I, I guess my favorite venue is the Aladdin, so I like to see shows there, but uh-huh. it seems like there's less and less shows there that I like. I haven't been to Revolution Hall yet, and everybody says I need to go there. That's yeah. a great place. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just kind of out of it. 
<laughs> I'm just kind of out of the loop. You know? So did you start out as, as, a, as a guitar player? Yeah. 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 Well, I was always a, a singer-songwriter. Uh-huh. I started in... I started writing songs in high school. And so when I um, went off to college, I got... Oh, I got... I was writing songs, and the bands I, bands I played in played my songs, and uh-huh. and I um, and I took a songwriting course from this guy who said he was a music publisher, came up from Dallas, and he had a country and western label, and he tried to sign me, sign me to his country and western label, but I I didn't think that was a very good fit for me, because uh-huh. I wasn't really country. Um, even though I was playing like, you know, what I was doing was leaning on the whole Flying Burrito Brothers, Birds, uh-huh. Sweetheart of the Rodeo kind of thing. Yeah. It wasn't really a country act. No. And, um, but in hindsight, I probably should have done it for a while just for the experience, <laughs> you know. So then I packed up and moved to Nashville to be a songwriter, and I lasted there about nine months. <laughs> and man, I was, I did not like Nashville. I don't know anybody who does. I did not like it there. I've never heard anybody who said they really loved Nashville. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It just didn't work for me, you know. And so I, so my next stop was Austin because I grew up in Fort Worth, uh-huh. and I'd gone to school in Denton. And so, you know, I think I, I moved to Austin in like '74, mm-hmm. and I immediately started playing. If I wasn't playing solo, I was playing in bands, and I don't know. It was it was easy. It was easy to meet people, and uh-huh. I fell in with this songwriter, Rich Minus, and we played duos. We played uh, with a band, and we played this great place called the Split Rail. It was just this right. It was right on the river in downtown Austin. It was <laughs> it was an asphalt. It had been an old drive-in, you know how you know where they had the car hops yeah. and stuff, and the um, and the big awning, metal awning was still out in the parking lot, <laughs> but the place had been torn down or something. So they had put up this shotgun shack <laughs> that had ce- rough cedar posts holding it up, <laughs> and it just had funky paneling on the sides, and it was and and when you stood on the stage. You only had about a foot to the ceiling because the ceiling wasn't very high. And it was just this long shotgun shack with all these cafeteria tables. And and it was and they and people brought their kids. But it was like it was where all the hippies and the cowboys went to hang out uh-huh. if they weren't at the armadillo. And they had like seventy five cent long necks, chicken fried steak with French fries and and salad for a dollar seventy five. And and we all made about thirty to fifty bucks each when we played there. Wow! So if you if you're making thirty to fifty bucks a night and and beers are only seventy five cents and yeah. and uh, chicken fried steaks a buck and a quarter a buck seventy five it's like you can live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, and then I got more into into a rock and roll kind of thing, and then the and then the new wave punk thing came along, and I got into that too, and played in a couple of different bands. And wait, a minute, you were in punk bands? I was in a band called The Desires, and we played uh-huh. half original songs yeah. and half old rock and roll songs that we played real fast. <laughs> you know, so we were like, we were, we were uh, paying tribute to our roots, but we jacked it up a little bit. <laughs> And I did, did you that. Wear, did you wear punk outfits? Uh, yeah, I was. I was wearing kind of rockabilly outfits. Oh, yeah. yeah, rockabilly yeah. outfits uh-huh. with you know little little jackets and tight pants. <laughs> I've got these. <laughs> I had these seersucker striped pants, maroon and white, with their small kind of pinstripe stripes that fit me really tight. I mean, they were just like I still have them. I still have them, and every once in a while, I pull them out and I go. I can't believe I used to get into these things. <laughs> I can't even get a leg in them now. I used to have a seersucker suit. Did you? Yeah, I bought it in a junk, in a junk store on Magazine Street in New Orleans. I always liked seersucker. Yeah. 
That's just out. Nobody, nobody uses that anymore, do they? I don't think so. Yeah, I wonder why. It's a I nice summer. It's a nice summer weight. Well, there's no reason why it can't be cool again. Yeah. Everything else comes back. <laughs> I mean, everything's back except eight tracks. True. That's you know? true. And the only reason that there's no eight tracks back is because you can't get any, you can't get a player get a, or or any way to record on them. Well, I hope cassettes never come back because I hate. Cassettes. Oh no, they're back. Oh, I hate cassettes. Oh, they are back. Matter of fact, I saw advertised a thing called the Elbow, which is uh, it looks like an elbow, right? It's an elbow thing, and one side um, is is the playback head yeah. for your cassette, uh, and the other side makes the wheel spin around, yeah. and it has a headphone, so you can play all your all of your cassettes. I have, I have yeah. uh, hundreds of cassettes still. You know, I have that whole, was... I have whole, um, I have two years of, of radio shows on cassettes from when I used to do Orioles pregame shows. Well, I was just, my problem with the cassettes was the quality was always poor. Well, you but know? you were you weren't listening to them on anything. What? Yeah, yeah. Still, little, yeah, I wanted it to sound good. If it wasn't vinyl, that's why I, I liked it when CDs were invented. Because then you could then you could get a CD and it didn't get all scratched or worn out. Yeah. You know, um, and vinyl was just vinyl was just so heavy to carry around. And now it's much cooler than CDs. Oh yeah, I know. Much, I, well, I'm not cool. <laughs> <laughs> Being cool, I'm long past that. Well, but, I, st I still have about 4,000 LPs. Oh, jeez. So. Tom, where do you put them? Well, I'm still in the same place, and until <laughs> I get thrown out, you know, until they raise the rent six or 800 bucks, I'm going to keep them. You know? Oh, man. No reason to get rid of them. Plus, you know, um, KMHD has two where do you sleep? fabulous... Well, <laughs> I have I have, I have my, my bed's in a different room. From the LPs. <laughs> Are you sleeping on the LP? <laughs> but uh, but KMHD has two fabulous uh, turntables, and I use them every oh, yeah. week. Oh well, I I think vinyl sounds killer, man. I mean, I, yeah. I think it's great. You know, yeah. I mean, I didn't give up vinyl until oh the mid '80s, I guess. Mm. I started buying CDs. Matter of fact, a few weeks ago, I played the very first album that I ever got. What was that? That was uh, Twist Till Quarter to Three with Gary U.S. Bonds. Oh, wow. I love Gary U.S. Bonds. Well, that whole scene is... I, I would like is that some, Philadelphia? I, I, no, it's not. It's, a, it's an interesting story. It's Norfolk. It's where? Norfolk. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a great story. And one of these days, I'm going to write about it. Huh? I just haven't, haven't done it yet. Um, but Because uh, nobody has. There was this guy named Frank Guida. And if you look at all, on, 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 all the Gary U.S. Bond stuff, you'll see Frank Weed's name. Uh -huh. And he was this, I don't know if he, well, I don't, I don't know if he was mobbed up. <laughs> but he was a New York guy who went, went in the service and somehow ended up in, in the Caribbean and got totally hooked on Calypso. Comes back to New York, right, and becomes a Calypsonian, this Sicilian, right? This, Frank Guida, the Sicilian, is all of a sudden a Calypsonian now, right? Now, some, now, one of the holes in the story is why did he move to Norfolk? You know, we don't know why. Did he have to leave? <laughs> Was he run out of time? We don't know the answer to that yet. But he went to Norfolk and um, bought a record store in the, in, in the hood. And his goal was to start a recording studio, and uh, and, and all of course all the, the all the musicians and stuff were hanging around a record store, and the record store was on Church Street. And that's where the Church Street Five came from, that Gary U.S. Bonds always sings about in his songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, but before he he hooked up with Gary U.S. Bonds, his name was Gary Anderson. He 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 still wanted to do calypso. And so he found a singer that he renamed Jimmy Soul. If you want to be happy for the rest of your life and never make a pretty woman your wife, that that was a big hit, big hit. That him? That's Jimmy's. That came. That's Frank Guida's doing. Oh, that's right? a big song. And 
Matilda, which is the most hilarious thing. That's a you know, Harry what? Belafonte tune, Matilda, Matilda, take me money and run Venezuela, right? Oh, okay. Well, he redid it with Jimmy Soul, and it was take me money and run to Las Vegas. Right? <laughs> and it's great because it's got... It's, he didn't know how to record, which was the charm of, of all the Gary U.S. Bonds tunes because they sound so crude. And then he decided he wanted it to sound like because there was a church right down the street and he wanted to get that flavor so then, that's why there's all these people yelling and screaming like they're at a party at quarter to, th- at quarter to three and school is out and all those other Gary U.S. Bonds tunes yeah and, uh, and, and so he just bring a bunch of people in the studio yeah. and get them to party yeah. down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I yeah. love that. Well, you know those so- those you know recording quality or not, those songs had so much energy, man. Oh, they're great. They were ju- you're just jumping out of the groove. Absolutely, you know? and it was at the time. That's when all the really shitty um, sitcom stars were because. Chuck was in Chuck was in jail. Uh, right. Little Richard was behind. It was in the pulpit. Right. Uh, Elvis was, was you know was, was Buddy Holly Vegas. and Richie Valens were dead. They were all dead. <laughs> and uh, and it was, you know and, yeah. and, and well Springsteen always credits Gary U.S. Bonds. Yeah. Actually Frank Guida for saving rock and roll. I mean Gary didn't have much to do with it. You know I mean he was yeah. a singer. But that's so did it. Guida have his own label? Yeah, Legrand. Legrand. Yeah. Because I never had a Gary U.S. Bonds single. Oh, I bought all the singles. I never had yeah, one. Yeah. I used to hear them on the radio all the time. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I doubt seriously I could have found one of those in Texas. Mm. You know, that was another thing, you know, about regional, Maybe, regional was... records. Sometimes rack jobbers just didn't get them down yeah. to your neck of the woods, you know. You just, yeah. you know, it was hard to get a hold of them. Yeah, but Quarter to Three and School is Out, those were big national They're hits. big songs, yeah. 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 You must have heard them somewhere. <laughs> Heard them on the radio. Yeah, they were okay. they were they yeah. were top top yeah. ten hits. Yeah, yeah. When I was listening to KXOL. And what KXOL, was the first KZ, record you got? The first record I got. Yeah. Well, this is a sad story, Tom. Uh oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. The first record I ever got was Rubber Soul by the Beatles because my family didn't have a record player. Oh no. I had I grew up in a house where there was no record player, there was no musical instruments, there was no interest in music. My dad watched the only music I was exposed to as a kid, except when we went over to somebody else's house, was Lawrence Welk. But you saw Pete Fountain. That means you saw Pete Fountain. Yeah, I probably saw <laughs> Pete, Fa- Pete Fountain. But but any but we would go over to we had some my parents had some really good friends. Dot and Hank, and they didn't have any kids, so they loved me. So we'd go over there, and they had a record player, and they loved music. And the first, I think, the first record over there that really got my attention was Blood on the Saddle by Tex Ritter. Oh. And he, they had this Tex Ritter album. And I, every time I went over there, yeah. I played that. And then they had another song. You know that song? I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Of course, coconuts. Merv Griffin. Yeah. yeah. Well, that was the other one that got my attention. Do you know who Tex Ritter influenced? I used to hang out with Otis Blackwell. Really? 35 years ago, right? And I said, Otis, who were your influences? Because I did a whole bunch of interviews with him. Because, you know, he was he wrote All Shook Up and Don't Be sure. Cruel. And oh, yeah. Great Balls of Fire, oh, yeah. and Return to Sender, and Breathless. And he said... Well, there's two people. Larry Darnell, who was a, a, a ballad singer from New Orleans, black guy, and Tex Ritter. Wow. Well, you listen to it, Otis wrote country songs. Yeah, this is true. You know? This is true. He was this little black man from Brooklyn. And the guy who owned the, the movie theater, or managed the movie theater, would let him sit and watch Tex Ritter movies and for, for, for sweeping up. Wow. <laughs> so do you know how Tex Ritter died? No. Every, every, he lived in Nashville, and every Christmas day he'd go down to the jail and he'd take his guitar and he'd sing for the inmates wow. on Christmas Day. And he was down there singing and he died of a heart attack. Wow. Was he singing Hillbilly Heaven? I don't know. That would, wouldn't that be good? I don't know. Could have been, could have been <laughs> it. Yeah. That would have been perfect. Yeah. He died singing Hill. Oh, what a beautiful sight. And you know, Boom. John Ritter was his son. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he died. He went down there every Christmas. 
But anyway, uh, so I, you know, Texas Ritter, blood on the saddle. Oh, man. Uh-huh. How'd that go? Blood on the saddle. That's all I can remember. <laughs> and the other one he did was rye whiskey. I love oh, that. yeah. yeah, yeah I love yeah. the first line of rye whiskey. He says, I was up on Clinch Mountain. I was drunk and alone, and I fell off the back of my strawberry roan. That's cowboy poetry <laughs> right there, man. That's cowboy poetry. <laughs> Now, did you ever consider yourself a, 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 in the cowboy thing? Oh, God. When I was a kid, I was just, I had, I had yeah. guns, chaps, vest, hats, really? the whole outfit. Oh, yeah. Got my picture. You know, they in my little neighborhood, they brought the, the guy brought the horse around, and I got my picture made up on the pony, you know, with my, all my cowboy gear on. Oh, God, yeah. Did you know real cowboys? Huh? Did, you're from Texas. Did you know real cowboys? My granddad was a real cowboy. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. He was a cowboy down in uh, around San Marcos, and you know, San Marcos is about 30 miles south of Austin. And when he was a kid, that's what he. I've got a picture, picture, a couple of snapshots of him standing out by the corral, and he's got on his. And he, man, it's authentic. He's got on these boots that don't come up that high, but his pants are tucked down inside of him. <laughs> and he's got on one of those real cowboy hats that, yeah. that it's 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 not cons- pretty. It's not really a flattering hat, but yeah. it's functional. It keeps the sun and the rain <laughs> off of it. But yeah, he was a cowboy down there, um, and he, you know, he hated LBJ. And the reason he hated LBJ was that he was a cowboy down there when LBJ's dad uh, had the Johnson Ranch. Uh-huh. And and the Johnsons ran that part of the country like they were the law. Sure. And they would hang people. Because they were. Yeah, they yeah. would hang people and do all kinds. And my granddad said, oh my, he said they were awful people. Huh. He said, they were, He said, oh, they were awful. They, they hung people for no reason. You know, they'd say, oh, you stole my cattle when somebody didn't really do it. But anyway, yeah, he's he was a cowboy. Wow. So did that did that uh, did that? How did you feel about LBJ then? After when you when you were coming up, did you hate him too? Because your granddad did. Um, I ha- I hated him because of Vietnam. Oh, and I was also sense. very suspicious of him and the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. yeah. Um, my granddad had a, my granddad uh, had a button. Uh, during when LBJ was running for election, my grand and I still have it, and it says, uh, "Sterilize LBJ, no more ugly children." <laughs> Jeez. That's mean. That's really mean. And, I, and another it's button. True, and he used to wear that, and he wore another button that said, "Stokely is a riot," <laughs> and I've got that. My granddad, he was kind of a rounder. I've got great stories about him and my uncle. They were they were brother-in-law. Uh-huh. They were always getting in trouble, like, dr- drinking and fighting and stuff. Oh, really? Right. They they my mother tells this story about she went to the home game. She was at, in Sherman, Texas. That's where they lived. And my mother was uh, in high school, and they went to the home game, the football uh-huh. football game. And they were up in the stands, and all of a sudden they they looked down, and somebody had set the end zone on fire. <laughs> And and it was just, it was my granddad and uncle and they got in in a fist they were drunk and they got in a fight with some Marines, and they were fist fighting and their cigarettes f- fell in the grass and burned up the end zone. <laughs> Can't make stuff like that Jeez. up. Now you didn't do stuff like that, did you? Uh, no, I didn't get caught. I never set anything on. <laughs> I never set anything on I fire. I didn't say that. I, I didn't say get I caught. I never. I never set anything on fire. But I, I, I was. I did my share of. You know, when I was in when I was in high school, I was kind of. Uh-huh. Me and my buddies, we you know, going out drinking on the weekends was. Pretty much par for the course, and then when you know, of course, my infamous story is when we used to go to the cellar club in Fort Worth when we were 16. Oh, man. Yeah, we we got told by some other, we were like juniors in high school, uh-huh. and these other friends of ours said, hey, there's this place in downtown Fort Worth where you can you can go, and, they, and they've got mute, live music, and they've got waitresses that serve you in their underwear. 
And we went, huh? And they said, yeah. He said, you just go up there and you pay a dollar and you go in. And we were like, okay. So me, me and three of my friends on a Wednesday night or Thursday, some weeknight. Yeah. And this place was open from seven at night till seven in the morning. <laughs> so anyway, we went down there and we, we when we walked in, the the guy standing outside the door, he was just out there smoking a cigarette. He's some biker guy. He looked mean as hell. And we were like, I was like, oh, crap, you know. So anyway, we got by him. And the cellar, it was upstairs. So uh-huh. we'd go up the stairs. And when you got to the top, there was this little table with a light. And there was a guy sitting at a chair. And he said, let me see your ID. Well, you know, in Texas, we all had driver's license. I got my license when I was 14. That's just kind of <laughs> how it worked. You took your driver's ed and you got your driver's license. So we all yeah. had driver's license. But, you know, yeah, right. it said I was 16. I was like, well. I'm thinking, well, this is the end of this. Yeah. So I show him the, I, I show it to him, and he goes, you got a dollar? And I said, yeah. So I gave him a dollar, and he gave me my license and stamped my hand. <laughs> and we all just went in and went in, and there was this big bandstand, and there was this band called the Cellar Dwellers playing, and they did all <laughs> Beatle covers, yeah. but they were really good. Uh-huh. I learned a lot about playing guitar by going to the cellar. Really? Yeah. But anyway, like, on the and, it, and the place was like the walls were black and they had all these black lights and they had this big day glow hand shooting the finger and then on the <laughs> wall it said evil spelled backwards as live and all the waitresses were like, they were probably like anywhere from 19 to 22 years old and they uh-huh. were all wearing panties and bras and that was it. Jeez. And we we were just like, oh my God, we, we're in heaven. <laughs> this is... So anyway, we sat down, and uh, the waitresses come over and said, you know, what do you need? So we were going to be really cool. We said, uh, bourbon and Coke. You know, of course, they charged us two twenty-five for a Coke. There was yeah. no booze in it. Right. But anyway, so we would go there and just stay, like, for hours. Yeah. But it was cool. And then every once in a while, like, getting towards midnight, one of the, one of the waitresses to get up and take their top off, dance on the bands and take their top off, and we were like, we were just, we were teenagers. We were like, oh man, this is like, it doesn't get any better than this. And the other thing about the cellar that was cool was they had these big, mean bouncers, and like nobody caused any trouble. It was one of the safest places wow. to be. The only time we saw a fight is when. Now, there a couple of, about three Marines came in. This was during Vietnam, and they were drunk, and they started they started acting up. And oh man, these bouncers jumped on them and just tore them up. And we were like, "Holy Christ!" <laughs> so anyway, that, I don't know. It was it was fun, but I learned a lot about music. And they had so not only did they have the cellar dwellers, but they'd play a set, and then this other band called the Geeks would get up, and they played all birds covers. <laughs> So, you know, this was like yeah. mid-60s, and I was going, oh, this is like too much, man. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, that was, I spent a well, we used to just spend the night. we tell our parents, oh, I'm spending the night over Dave's right. house, and then we'd just spend the night at the cellar and come out at <laughs> 7 in the morning. You know, we'd stay there all night long. So anyway, that was fun. That's great. So what, what, was, uh, uh, what were some of your early bands that you were in? Did you have, or did they have weird names? Um, well, the first band that I ever played in that was really good, and we had, and we, people liked us, was called North 40. Uh-huh. And we did my songs, and then we did like, oh, some um, Buffalo Springfield and uh, Birds and Traffic. We did some stuff from Tommy. I mean, <laughs> we, we were just all over the, you know. Yeah. We had a guitar, well, everybody was, really pretty good except me I, w- I was a good singer and I could play rhythm guitar pretty good but we had this killer guitar player and he could play just about anything I learned uh-huh. a lot from him John Swain uh-huh. um, so that was the first band and then I played in a band in Dallas called Yanis and we were a uh-huh. three piece band and we had a house gig at a club there and played there for a year or so and then I went to Nashville, and then I came back and went to Austin, and I played in a Texas swing band called Dark Horse. And uh, and then the next band I was in was Slow Motion, and then The Desires, and then Private Lives, and then <laughs> I moved off. And then I had Ron Rogers and the White Slave Boys, <laughs> and then I moved to L.A. Why did you move to L.A.? 
Because I was starving to death. Oh. Because well, one, one good reason. Well, we, you know, we'd had band, Deborah and I had had bands in Austin, and we'd been, and I'd been a recording engineer, or I was an uh-huh. audio engineer, you know, recording other bands and stuff. And you know, the the uh, economy in Austin was real up and down, and so we just hit this place where, man, you know, I wasn't getting any engineering gigs, and things were changing, and uh-huh. and we just were going backwards. And so we just, I had, I had a, a home recording rig, this Akai 12 track that I used to go do remotes with. Mm-hmm. And I had gone and done a couple of churches over on the east side. I'd go do, I'd go record their, um, their spring shows uh-huh. and they'd have like a 40 piece choir wow. and like a bass, drums, B3 and piano and guitar player wow. and they would just rock the house and yeah. I would go set up and record them. Mm-hmm. So I charged them to do that and then I would middleman. they'd want to put out cassettes and I, so anyway, right at this time when we wanted to leave Austin, I <clears throat> made about 4,000 bucks which was a fortune to me back then. Right. This was like 89. It's a fortune to me right now. <laughs> and so we said, okay, this is the time to move. So we moved to L.A. not knowing what the hell we were going to do. And my first week there, I got my job at A&M, where I worked for nine and a half years. And what was that job? I was I worked in the post-production department. And the first job that I got, I went to, I went to visit a guy in the A&R department that I'd gone to college with. And he asked me what I was going to do. And I said, well, I'm going to probably get a job in a studio as an engineer. Because... That uh-huh. was the obvious thing I could probably do pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and he said, well, you know, we got a re- world-class recording studio here with five rooms that Herb Alpert, you know, it's it's ba- basically his baby, but, you know, d- do you want me to introduce you to the studio manager? And I said, well, yeah, yeah. probably. <laughs> so we went down to Mark Harvey's office. That was the studio manager, and he uh, – we sat down, and, and Deborah, my wife, was even with me. And we sat down, and he started asking me some questions. And about the third question he asked me, he said, can you cut tape? And, I, and I said, yeah. You know, no, like, you know, like editing, you know, and there's, stuff. There's, there, there are people out there who don't know what that is. Yeah, yeah I know. So anyway, he, he said, can you cut tape? And I said, oh, yeah. This is before digital editing. Yeah, yeah. It was a... a, it was a, a, a it's the thing you a did. Razor, razor blade and a, and a block. That's right. Lay the tape across the block with a. And there's a lot of great. There's a lot of great singles that are edits. Oh you, yeah. You know, I mean, then yeah, you can't. Yeah, you know, they. Yeah, they it's yeah. just done so well. I did a. I did a radio show for two years. Um, uh, one of the Orioles pregame shows. Uh, just before digital, digital audio editing came in, and, and the guy I did it with. Was a was just a master at because at, the show it was, was there was there was four minutes of story right mm-hmm. and it was but it was, it was cut like TV and so there was a million edits and we and he just boom, 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 boom. It, was, it was unbelievable yeah uh, that that's a, that's an incredible talent well anyway so what they put me to work doing my first day was they um, the A and R department when they would have a sales meeting, they'd say, okay, we got four releases this quarter. Okay, one of them Sting. So we're going to play the three single releases for everybody when we get together, get them around the table for the sales meeting. And so I would edit, I would take three Sting songs mm-hmm. and I would do a chorus and, and I would do a verse and chorus, like a little bit of the intro, verse, chorus. Yeah. And then crossfade it down into the next song. And so right. in like, you know, two and a half, three minutes or even less, they would hear the three songs. And that's what I started doing. And and I did that. And just other things in the post-production department, there were just, you know, we, uh, we striped back then. We were striping three-quarter inch videotape with audio so they could shoot videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were doing pre-release cassettes before CDs. We were doing radio spots. I I recorded our, our A&M artists doing radio spots. Like, well, the most fun one I did was I did Herb Alpert a couple times for his releases. Mm-hmm. And Herb's just... Uh, what was he like? Oh, man. So you hear these stories about 
how, oh, man, he's got charisma. You know, uh -huh. that guy's got so much charisma. Uh -huh. When Herb Albert came, you know, like sitting in a room this size with Herb, there's just this thing, this energy coming off of him. Yeah. And he's just the, the sweetheart of a guy and really, really intelligent but nice. And, you know, in this room that I work in, there was about five, anywhere from five to seven people doing different things. So when the somebody would come in to do a radio spot, we'd just shut everything off and we'd you know, me or whoever would just concentrate on recording all these radio spots and basically we'd roll a quarter inch tape mm -hmm. and Herb would just say, Hi, this is Herb Alpert and listen you're listening to blah 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Look for my new album, blah 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 and he'd just read off, you know, a hundred or hundred and fifty of these. Yeah. So um but anyway, you know, he'd be in there for I don't know ever how long it took. And God when he'd leave, man, we were all just buzzing off of his vibe. Wow. I mean, I'm serious, you know, yeah. I, and I'm not a touchy feely uh, kind of. I, I know, you know, I'm not a <laughs> I'm not a cosmic person, right? But man, that guy, and you know, I just I just saw him do things when I worked there, like helping people out when they needed money. Like uh -huh. I remember one kid who was real poor came to work there in the A and R department as an intern one summer, and he was a really good singer, and he wanted to go to um, Juilliard and study and and the A&R department somebody in the A&R department told Herb hey you, you got to hear this kid sing so the so the kid came up and went to Herb's office and sang for him and Herb Herb gave him the the tuition money for the first year wow you know and what and what was really cool about what Herb did was he said I'm going to I'm going to loan you the money to go to school for the first year see how it goes and the kid said, "Okay." And Herb said, "But you got to pay me back." And he goes, "I will, I will." And then, the, and then Herb said, "Well, okay. Actually, you don't have to pay me back. But if you ever get to a place where you can help somebody out, like I'm helping you, yeah, you got to do it." Wow. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Can't help but like a guy like that, right? And he was always giving money to the arts. I mean, it was. <laughs> so anyway, it was fun working for him. Mm -hmm. And, and working there. It was like a family. And then Polygram bought it, and it spiraled down the toilet. Oh, well. So did, did, were you ever uh, uh, you, were, were you around when, uh, when he was actually playing the trumpet? Uh, yeah. I, I, I tell you, this was fun, too. So we used to have a Christmas party yeah. every year. They got to where they, by the time I got there, they weren't having Christmas parties out with everybody bring their families and stuff. They just... Uh -huh stop doing that so we they they had a big sound studio there which on the because we were on the old charlie chaplin lot herb and jerry uh -huh. bought the old Char charlie chaplin yeah. movie lot yeah and the and charlie chaplin's original sound stage was there and they'd shoot videos there uh -huh. but anyway so that's where we'd have the christmas party and so one year uh we were having the christmas party and it like usually happened like at lunchtime and we'd all go over there and of course you could drink and eat and it was like you didn't work any after that you yeah. know the day was over and so anyway they had a christmas party and so they had they brought in this uh they brought in this black choir from south central like 30 piece voice choir and this black drummer and and b3 player and so they just started you know while we were eating they were just singing christmas songs and rocking the house with all this wow. gospel music and it was just killer. Yeah, yeah. So then after this is the way it would always work and then there'd be a break and they would give out awards like you know people got 20 year records yeah. gold records yeah. for being there and so they made some presentations and then after that Herb got up with his trumpet and played Christmas songs with that choir. Wow. And man I was stunned at how cool and good it was. I mean he was yeah. like it was good. I was like, I was just standing. I mean, I was standing about eight feet away from him, watching him play in this choir. And I was going, Ron, this is cool. <laughs> this is a cool. This is a cool thing. Huh. So yeah, that was that was my getting to hear him play. So Polydor comes in, and there goes the label, right? Um, yeah, they they made all kinds of boner moves and. And they just, you know, they immediately started laying people off, you know. Right, that's what happened. Bottom line. Yes. They had, you know, they, right. they paid a bunch of, they paid $500 million for A&M records. 
They had to, and they didn't get any of the publishing. Whoa! They just bought the back catalog. They didn't get the publishing. Herb and Jerry kept the publishing. Wow! And those, and those, those and, and that money's still rolling in. Well, here's what they did. So they, but they had a non-compete clause. So uh-huh. for five years they couldn't compete with Polygram. They couldn't go into yeah. business. But they, you know, they had the publishing. They were collecting right. their money. Well, that whole five years they were working on their new label, which was. Uh, Almo Sounds, and they're and so they were getting ready to when that five years was up, they were going to launch yeah. their um, label. And of course, the first two acts they launched was um, uh, Garbage, <laughs> and um, who's that girl singer that that. It'll come to you. Don't yeah, worry. Anyway. It's, it's all right. Gillian Welch. Oh, yeah. That was their first two acts. Wow. Yeah. And they and they came out. Both of those were, were good. Those were good first, first yeah. acts. Yeah. You know? So in, then after, oh, I don't know. So they started their label. And then maybe two years after they started the label, they filed a lawsuit against Polygram for breach of contract. <laughs> Because Polygram had done this weird thing. They were supposed to have Herb and Jerry stay on and see the transition of the label. And they did something that pissed them off, and Herb and Jerry split. But um, anyway, they, they filed a lawsuit, breach of contract. And so they just went into, you know, they, were, they had this full-blown lawsuit going against Polygram. Yeah. And so to settle the lawsuit, uh-huh. they, to settle the lawsuit, so, uh, Polygram, bought Almo Sounds and then all the publishing that Herb and Jerry owned for another $500 million. <laughs> Those guys were so smart. Wow. They just, wow. and they were wow. just laughing all the way to the bank. Jeez. We were stunned. We were stunned when that Polygram settled that thing for that much money. They could have started their own bank. <laughs> it was nuts. <laughs> it was just crazy. Well, that's I mean, even, even, that's even with the lawyer's cut, that's a lot of money. And back then, you know, that's when Seagram's bought MCA yeah. and all this and yeah. Universal and everything. You're going, what? Right. Anyway, there was a lot of craziness going on back in the right. two th- early 2000s, yeah. late right. 90s. People who did not, who couldn't see anything that was, that was on the way. I didn't, I didn't really get it. But anyway, yeah. I don't, I'm, wow. what do I know? So when did you move to Portland? 2004. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I didn't want to die in L.A. I'd been there 15 years. It's a long time for L.A. 15, yeah. We had a good run, but, yeah, it was uh-huh. time to go. Yeah. It was yeah. time to go. Yeah. And I love it. I mean, I've been so happy we moved here. Yeah. This is a great place. Now, were you doing your, your, your fine art in L.A. also? I was doing my, I was doing my Shrines to Dead Musicians, yeah. 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 Um, I sold a lot of those things of, out of a gallery in San Diego. Uh-huh. And just on, I sold a lot of, a lot. I think I probably, before I moved up here, I started doing that in about 96. And I think I sold about, I'd say somewhere between 100 and 110 yeah. coffins. Yeah. And around, I, I sold it, was a lot. Around, it was around 2004 that our good friend Lisa Lapine oh, gave me a call, said, listen, you you should go talk to this guy. And, uh, and, uh, yeah. Lisa. Did, did a TV story and and James yeah, James and Booker's coffin is on is is on my wall. Yeah, <laughs> along with the uh, that was a great along story. with the house uh, blessing. The house blessing. Yeah. Well, you kind of you and Lisa kind of especially you with the with the OPB thing kind of kicked my little arrival off. I kind of got I, you know I, I, setting yeah. up at the Blues Festival helped, but that TV thing was a, man, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. That was and that was a good piece, man. I, well, I, mean, I, had a lot, I had a lot to work with. <laughs> that was fun. Are you was, still doing those at all? You know, I'm not. I I kind of got into abstract painting, and uh-huh. I've and I've kind of gone that way, but not. I don't know. Art's a little harder for me to do than music. I I have to be totally immersed in it, and uh-huh. you get out of the habit, and it's just. I don't know, you know, and and now I've moved and I'm I'm gonna have to set up a new space. You moved? 
Yeah, we sold our house in southeast, and we moved to northeast. And I've I've got my recording studio up and running, but I don't really have an art studio. Uh huh. Um, uh-huh. But uh, we're, we've we're just kind of moved into this place last summer, so yeah. we haven't quite got it all together yet. So tell tell me who who is in the Wailing Wind right now? Um, Don Campbell of on bass. Yes. Uh, Chris Bond on drums, Deborah Giles is singing, and we got a couple of different guys that play with us. A guy named Grant Cumston plays mm-hmm. guitar, and then a keyboard player named Rich Landar, and mm-hmm. we kind of oh, yeah. switch off back and forth mm-hmm. with those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of who's playing with us now. Don and Chris and I have been together since the inception yeah. of the yeah. Wailing. He doesn't like me anymore. Who's that? Don. Oh. What are you talking about? He doesn't like me anymore. Oh. He doesn't. He likes everybody. He doesn't like me. <laughs> well, I don't know anything about that. <laughs> well, I don't know anything about what is it? Is it, is it? is it? Is it me or is it you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Because you and I have gone around from time to time. Well, yeah, because you're kind of cranky. Well... <laughs> And hey, look, and I brought, and a, I brought and a peace offering today. Whoa, jeez. I've loaned that to you one time, but I was, I, I was unpacking that not long ago when we moved, and I said, I know where, I know where this needs to go. I know a good home That's for beautiful. This. It's the big, big old box of New Orleans, doctors, professors, kings, and queens. Yeah. You know? You can play some of that on your radio show. I will play all of it on my radio show, but um, I had this. Okay. Yeah. And I loaned it to somebody whose dog destroyed it. <laughs> ate it. Ate the whole fucking box. And and uh, well, now you got it. Back. I got that's fabulous. Thank you, you so much. You're welcome. I really appreciate that. Oh man, oh man. You're welcome. Ooh. It's it's a uh, it's a four disc um collection of of great stuff. Now, didn't you know the guy who put this together? Wasn't that you? No, that wasn't me. Okay, I thought it was. Uh, I thought you asked me one time uh, for a Professor Longhair tune that had something to do with this. No? Okay. I don't think you so. say so. I think so. Don Vappy. Don Vappy. I popped one of those in on the way over here in my car, and I was when I pulled up and found a parking place, I was listening to Ain't Got a Home by Clarence Frogman <laughs> Henry. God, I love that song. <laughs> And almost, you know, there's probably 75% of these were, were done at, at Cosimo's with, yeah. with Dave Bartholomew's band. Have you seen that, that, that uh, Cosimo Matassa? Um, oh, there's a, there's a, no. a, a two-box set of oh, wow. Cosimo Matassa stuff. Oh. I will have to burn that for you. Okay. Because it's incredible. It's just the most amazing thing. Cool. Um, oh, yeah, that was where, that's where it was happening right there. Yeah, yeah. I heard. I, I read this story. Oh, you know, you read all kinds of things, but I read this story about that whenever he'd have the piano tune there, uh-huh. that he would have the the guy that tuned the to tune it. He he said uh, tune the upper two registers sharp <laughs> because he said they stuck out more on the records. <laughs> I don't know. Is that true? Anyway. Uh, I'll, I'll never forget. I went to the first Ponderosa Stomp. It was about 2000, 2001, and it was during it, it was it was during Jazz Fest, but it was like in, in the in the weekend in between. Yeah. And it was at a little place, not too far from Valence Street, where the Nevilles are from, and I had Dave Bartholomew's band. He was there playing trumpet. Earl Palmer was there. He couldn't. He was frail, but he got up for a couple of tunes, and was replaced by uh, 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 David Russell Batiste. Okay, oh, <laughs> um, and uh, and and over in the corner was this is Cosimo Matassa, and at the table over here is Alan Toussaint, and I just went, I can't believe I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe I'm here. I'll, I'll never. I'll, I'll just uh, it's something I'll never forget. You know. Is the Rock and Bowl still there? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I went there after Katrina. And it was all messed up, but it was still there, you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's still there. Cool. 
Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's something. Something. Jeez, this is. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. This is really nice of you. And Reggie's on this. Reggie what's Houston's what's he on playing this. on? Uh, Charmaine Neville Band with oh, Reggie Houston cool. and Amosley Miller. Cool. The right key, but the wrong keyhole. All right. <laughs> I see Reggie every once in a while up at that La Tapalaya. Tapalaya, yeah. Yeah. Tapalaya, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was up there eating one night, and he, he, I had already, I was halfway through my meal, and they came in and set up and everything, and I yeah. stuck around and listened a little bit, and yelled at him on my way out. Wait, I've I've had him over in my studio. Uh huh three or four times you know recording he's he's not like my go-to sax guy yeah you know last time i had him over he played on this guy james clem i'm getting ready to do another cd with him this spring or this summer spring's almost gone um (laughs) but i had i had reggie come over and james was doing uh a ukulele album and he he did I'm an old cow hand you know from the Rio Grande yeah on the uke and and Reggie put like a horn section on it it was so cool <laughs> and it, and you know what was really cool about it was you know uh, James said do you think you can play something on this and he goes yeah and so he played something and he said you want to do a section and we said yeah sure man he did that section so fast it was nuts really I mean, he's just like. We, I mean, we. Ha- I mean, he literally put a three three part horn section on yeah. on that song in about thirty minutes. You know, just just whipped it out. He's he's cool. He's he's a he's a fun hang too. You know, oh yeah. And he's a laughing all yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Reggie, and I, Reggie, and I have sat with Reggie many times and listened to him talk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, you know, we're we're good enough that I can I can like interrupt him because <laughs> if you don't, he <laughs> he'll talk, talk straight through. He'll talk. You know, as a matter of yeah. fact, I emceed uh, when when he um, when he had the surgery, and uh, uh, they threw a big benefit for him down at the old church. I emceed it, mm-hmm. and I, at the beginning, I got up and said, "Okay, Reggie is scheduled to speak at about 11:30." So you can just figure you're going to get out of here about 1230. <laughs> oh, I just thought of something. What? So if anybody wants to see my art, yes. it's in the lobby of the Alberta Rose Theater. Ah, very good. It's in there. Or you could come over to, to, to my living room. Come over to your living yeah. room. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, so, oh, I remember one of the sessions when I had Reggie in the basement. He told about when the king of Iceland hired Fats Domino to come play a week in Iceland. <laughs> I never heard that story. Yeah, he said they played two. They played in this dinner club that held about 150 people, and they did two shows a night. And Reggie said, "Oh my God, we were just treated like kings." I'm sure. And that and that guy and, and that, so when well, they because Fats was the king. Well, like, Fats was well, the king of rock and roll. When they when they uh, they called Fats and, and yeah. his bandager and said, "We want you to come to Iceland and play for a week," you know, Reggie said, "Fats said, I don't want to go to Iceland," and his manager said, "Well, how much would it take to get you there?" And 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 Fats said, "A million dollars." <laughs> that guy paid him a million bucks. Wow. <laughs> That's what Reggie said. Paid him a meal. Jeez. <laughs> you know, uh, not long. That's better after, in Vegas. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not long after Reggie's surgery, he came to a party at my place, and I had picked out a bunch of DVDs to play you know, during the party, and one was Fats at Jazz Fest, and Reggie was in the band, and so. I had a live commentary. You told me about that. I would have loved to have heard that. And there'd be a shot of Fat's hands, and Reggie go, see that ring? Van Morrison gave him that ring. There's only, only three like that in the world. And it was like stuff like that throughout the entire concert. <laughs> oh, man. Well, listen, thank you for coming in. I really appreciate it. It's been yeah, fun. Man. Well, it was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to do it more often. Yeah, and, and and yeah, and, and talk about we can talk about Tex Ritter more too because you can you can, yeah. can never talk too tell, much about tell Tex everybody Ritter. to come see me second Friday of every month happy hour six to eight at the Hawthorne Lounge corner at 
Southeast 39th and Southeast Hawthorne. It'll all be up on the page. Huh? It'll all be up on the page. Okay, cool. Thanks. Okay, Tom. Good seeing you.